The following presentation from simpletonpodcasts.com contains spooky words, mild nudity, and sporadic references to rectal trauma. Listeners susceptible to emotional collapse are advised to take suitable Precautions. My name is Dale E. Richardson, and I've seen things you wouldn't believe. My life's work has taken me to all corners of the globe. I've had face-to-face experience with UFOs, aliens, creatures of legend, and have performed countless exorcisms, both with and without. Vatican approval. I am here to tell you such phenomena exist in our time that should be treated with discernment and veracity on behalf of humankind. There is one man whose sole purpose is to investigate the vortex between the natural and supernatural. There is one. It's me, Dale E. Richardson. secret craft developed and piloted by mere people from planet Earth? Are they interdimensional aircraft piloted by equally interdimensional beings? Are they not of this world or are they, as many closed-minded skeptic would have us believe, nothing more than a figment of our collective imagination? Are they fairies? Are they unicorns? Are they you? Me? How do you know that your whole family is not being replaced by hybrids? Are they all around us or are we all around them? <laughs> For the people of Kerrang, a small town in northern Victoria, they are anything but a figment of the imagination. On Thursday, August 8, 1963, a couple of thousand true blue Aussie battlers endured a terrifying night of paranormal mayhem that would go down in the annals of UFO infamy. While it would not be easy to document even half of what occurred on that fateful night, a basic summary in itself offers enough material to keep a UFO investigator busy until the mutilated cows come home. But more of that, later. According to documents kept by Clarkson Dorado, the town clerk at the time, the nightmare started at approximately 6.15pm. Six green lights were sighted high in the sky above Kerrang 
and proceeded to hover in a formation for around 20 minutes. The lights intermittently shot off at eye-ripping speeds, dramatically changing direction without a hint of deceleration, before returning to hover like a weirdo near a kid's pool. By the end of the spectacle, word had well and truly spread with virtually the entire township out in the streets, gazing up into the sky like they'd just been shat on by a giant mutant bird. But then, as soon as they had appeared, the lights shot off into various directions. Five of them quickly disappeared from sight, but the other one made a low pass over the town at high speed. Close enough for some to identify it as a dick or cock-shaped object before it ascended slightly and disappeared behind a hill. Within minutes, most of the town folk had made their way back inside, a few remaining outside with their eyes fixed on the heavens above. By 7.30pm, even they retired as the excitement of the initial contact subsided. However, it would be the innocent calm before the molesting storm. At 8.15pm, the town's only on-duty police officer, Sergeant Bradley Brock, fielded a call from Stanley Burns, a young man who had been out shooting the town's cats with his friend, Rogerkin Rog Kennedy. According to a police transcript of the call, Burns told Sergeant Brock that he and Rog Kennedy, both of whom had not seen the earlier UFOs, had stumbled across two large dick or cock-shaped objects sitting stationary in the middle of old Eddie Pinochet's paddock, both with a row of green lights around the circumference of the shaft. The men, their torches turned off, had slowly advanced upon the objects to investigate, but upon hearing a strange mechanical noise, they cacked their backs, turned and sprinted back in the direction of their Subaru Brumby Ute. Upon reaching the nearby trees, Burns glanced back. Kennedy was nowhere to be seen. Though he could make out the silhouettes of what he described as small men of piss-out stature standing around in the huddle watching him flee. Sergeant Brock instructed Burns to come to the station from whence they would head back out to the site of the incident. The men, both heavily armed with large torches, were on the scene within half an hour of the call. All that was left behind, however, were two testicular-shaped scorch marks in the middle of the field. Kennedy had seemingly vanished like a can of Pepsi Max from a communal staff room fridge. After parting with Burns and returning to the station, Sergeant Brock fielded several calls from people who claimed they'd been harassed by flying saucers while driving along Kundruk Road. In one case, a car was nearly run off the road after being engaged in a virtual game of chicken. At 10pm, a loud siren began to wail across the town. It was coming from the local IGA. To this day, no prick knows for sure who was responsible for looting the business, but at least one eyewitness report obtained by the town clerk made mention of what appeared to be Several little naked jockeys, some of them carrying cartons of cigarettes, and others, bottles of piss. Rather than rushing to the source of the noise, only one street from the station, 
Sergeant Brock, now very much single-minded, chose to address the community on the town's emergency PA system. The following archival audio recording, originally spoken from within the station itself, is the actual address that was heard by the township of Kerrang shortly after 10pm on that hellish night. Residents of Kerrang, it seems clear that the UFO activity which took place about our town earlier this evening was the prelude to an extraterrestrial attack on our community. You are urged to remain calm, but also to exercise utmost caution. If you have not already, arm yourselves with whatever is available. Guns, cricket bats, preferably Slashinger, improvised cocktails, and barricade yourselves in your homes. Please remember that it is probable the aggressors are shapeshifters, more than capable of assuming human form. Do not trust your friends or loved ones. Be prepared to deal with them without remorse. If you do not hear back from me before daybreak, you will know that I have given my life in the fight against our common enemy. Godspeed. The town's other police officer, Senior Constable Andrew Wilmot, had been woken up in his home by the alarm at the supermarket. Then, hearing the announcement of his colleague over the loudspeakers in the street, he grabbed a sawn-off shotgun and a bag of cartridges from his closet before taking up a defensive position in his front garden. Uh, after a period of uh, approximately several minutes, I uh, observerized an uh, individual ambulating in a uh, forwardly direction, uh, coinciding with the approximate orientation of the street. Uh, 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 upon which it was uh, ambulating in a um, uh, forwardly uh, direction. Uh, feeling an immediate threat to my immediately safety, I immediately engaged in self-preservatory kinetic operations as the extraterritorial manifestation transcribed itself past my immediate vicinity. I uh, tactically closed my eyes and discharged my firearm into the region of the perpetrator's back. At roughly the same time, Sergeant Brock had been called out by a resident who'd reported seeing a short little man with large black eyes loitering in her backyard. As uh, fate would have it, the house was on the end of the uh, same street that my partner lived on. It's close to the station, so I decided I'd go on foot. As I uh, advanced down the street, I heard a massive booming sound behind me, and when I hit the deck. I can't describe the sound. The alien must have been using a plasma weapon or some other kind of advanced technology. After I crawled to cover, I started returning fire, though I uh, couldn't see the target. I assume it was using some kind of cloaking technology. So uh, as I changed magazines, I started screaming at the invader. Uh, and I, I guess I was furious at it for daring to attack my world. Wilmont continues the harrowing tale. Uh, my first discharge had negatively connected with the ET. And the uh, interloper must have uh, teleported into cover. When I tactically opened my eyes, it wasn't anywhere on the road. Suddenly, I came under fire from what must have been a rapid-fire railgun, 
The tactical situation I was operating in was deteriorating. But uh, during a lull in the exchange of fire, I heard Sergeant Brock swearing up a storm and I joined in. The intruder must have suffered a uh, negative morale attack and teleported away. I called out to Brock and we tactically secured the area of operations. It still makes me cold when I think about it. I emptied dozens of rounds from my rifle into that street and Wilmont used up most of a box of shells. Uh, but apart from a number of civilians and pets, we hit nothing. I didn't even find a trace of the thing's blood. Really, uh, I'd say it's, it's like we were shooting at a ghost. Several more phone calls from terrified residents were received by Sergeant Brock before midnight, but he didn't leave the station until a while later. Instead, he urged each of the shit-scared callers to follow the advice he had broadcast in his earlier diatribe at the Broader Township. At some time between midnight and half-past twelve came this, his second and final address to the people of Kerrang. People of Kerrang, the hour has come. People of Kerrang, now, listen to this, you beautiful bastards, huh? And you listen good. There must come a time for every man, woman, and even child when, uh... Shit! I think I see one of them out the window. It's, uh, it's going along the street. It's all... Wait, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. As the mayhem dragged on into the early hours of August 9, one man, local farmer Joe Barnes, who wasn't aware of what had been going on in the town since the previous evening, was nonetheless having a restless night of sleep. I spoke with Jeremiah Barnes, Joe's bastard nephew, about what his so-called uncle had experienced on that single night back in 1963. Jeremiah, tell us what happened. Uh... Uncle Joe talked uh, openly about what went on that, that night and his stories never changed. It was seared into his memory like a well done sirloin. That's what he always told us. He turned in early the previous night but uh, he wasn't able to sleep all that good due to gout and the ongoing commotion from his herd of cattle which had about 50 head amongst 40 odd cattle. Not far from the left, left side there of the, uh, the old farmhouse. So anyway, uh, at about 4pm, I think it was, or maybe 4am, more to the point. He'd had enough and he got up to have a, have a squeeze, you know. Some of the, the cows were lying on the ground swishing their tails, while others ambled around like codgers, clearly uncomfortable. All of them bellowing like a bunch of touched up sheilas at a blue light that you know so uh, he knew something was totally rooted so he got into his ute and fanged it for town to grab the vet and that you know and uh, 
as he got to town, he's seen a bunch of townies on the streets with guns, torches, pitchforks and that, you know, and they were looking pretty riled up, eh? Other weird shit was happening too, and uh, the vet wasn't even in bed when Uncle Joe got there. He was old up in his home with his family. He actually had a 22-250 semi-trained on my uncle before he even realised it was my uncle and that, so he then apologised. So anyway, he told Uncle Joe about everything that was going on as they drove back out to the farm. They both spent all morning uh, ripping out stitches from the cow's asses. Every single bloody cow uh, in the whole bloody herd, without exception, had had its uh, dirt pipe sewn completely shut. You wouldn't read about it. My uncle never really understood what had happened with his cattle that night, but he was sure it had something to do with all of that commotion in the town. Joan Barnson kept him for stitching for future analysis. However, his cattle would not be the only ones straighted up in like manner during the encounter at Kerrang. Roger Ken and Roger Kennedy, who had gone missing on a hunting trip with his friend Stanley Burns, woke from a deep state of unconsciousness on the 17th Ladies Tee, some four kilometres out of Kerrang. Simon Kennedy, Roger's son, recounts what his father had told him regarding the night of August 8th. 1963. Uh, when he woke up, he just uh, lay there for a while. Uh, we had pretty much no idea why he was there or of uh, anything from the previous evening. Uh, he looked at his watch. It was a little bit after 6 a.m., uh, 10 hours after he vanished. He also had uh, intense pain in his backside, severe pain. He uh, was a member of the club, and uh, though he was hardly able to walk, he uh, began to make his way into the town. It was slow going, uh, of course, but he was picked up by a local uh, on the way in, and he was uh, then driven to the, uh, the house of his poor girlfriend at the time, uh, which was not my mother, I hasten to add. No, uh, she was on the scene uh, a few years later. Anyway, uh, amid all this chaos of the previous night. No one had uh, noticed him missing, uh, but that harlot, well, she immediately filled him in on everything and uh, it already seems like there was a connection between all of that on the one side and the uh, temporary disappearance uh, of my father on the other. So uh, she had a look at his backside after that and she uh, immediately noticed that uh, his anal orifice had been completely sewn up. He got out a standing knife and proceeded to uh, remove all of the stitches one by one. My father told me that it was the most painful half hour of his entire life. Unlike Uncle Joe, Roger Kennedy kept the stitching and had it sent off to a private laboratory that specialized in rectal forensics. However, they were not able to match the fibre with any known fabric. Furthermore, in the weeks, months and even years ahead, he was plagued by a dream that he felt certain was connected with his disappearance. My uh, father categorically refused hypnosis and uh, he never undertook such a course of action to, to help 
clarify what it was that he'd endured. But he often dreamt about it. He would uh, burst into our rooms to tell us in grave detail every time he had the dream, and uh, it was pretty much the same dream every time, perhaps with a, a few small alterations from one dream to the next. Uh, the common theme that uh, ran through all of them, however, was that he was lying on a, a cold, uh, hard table in a dark room. He was awake and uh, unrestrained in a physical sense, but uh, absolutely powerless to move. And, as I recall, he was surrounded by queer little grey chaps uh, with large dark eyes, and uh, he was in a haze as the aliens were doing various tests on him with bizarre instruments, and uh, after a while they, they turn him over, and he then feels an intense burning pain in his rectum. He wants to scream, but he's paralyzed and he can't. It was always at exactly this point when the dream ended. Whenever he was asked by anyone about what had happened, he'd usually give a vague response, but I remember one specific time when I actually asked him why it happened. Why? In response, he, he said, I'm sure it happened for a reason, but for the life of me, I, I have no idea what it is. By the time Roger had had his final stitch removed, a vestige of normalcy had begun to return to the town. The last known UFO sighting was made at 3am, a full hour before Uncle Joe Barnes got out of bed to check his cattle. As 9am ticked over, Victoria Street, the main strip in the town, began to bustle with business as if it were any other day. The spectacle of the previous night, however, was of course all too fresh in the collective mind, especially given the material carnage that had been suffered across the community. By midday, Kerrang was crawling with security personnel. According to documents kept by local historians as well as first-hand accounts featured in a local history booklet published in 1993, sighting areas were sealed off and investigated while physical evidence such as photographs were seized. Meanwhile, witnesses were interviewed and warned not to speak to anyone about anything ever again. Moreover, in virtually all mainstream media exposure given to the account of Kerrang, Authorities have continued to present the point of view that it was all brought about by essentially nothing more than a cocktail of public hysteria, superstition, and small-town pissheads playing practical jokes. This is an explanation that skeptics and officialdom continue to offer to this very day. The encounter at Kerrang took place half a century ago, and many of those who witnessed it are no longer with us. Though many of them are gone, however, the vast majority of roughly 2,000 people that night bore witness to something that couldn't and still can't be adequately explained by the white-coated hacks. It brings to mind a quote from 19th century paranormal scholar Brigadier Dr. Sir Harren Dahl of His Majesty's 33rd Man of Grenadiers, mystic, poet, and first order philanderer. On the topic of this queer aerial phenomenon, after seven years of research, I have found myself arriving upon a singular, irrefutable conclusion. This vulgar phenomenon of Martian dirigibles crewed by extraterranean Nubians can, without any skerrick of His Majesty's doubt, be singularly ascribed to the presence of Satan herself. 
The only certain defense against such devilry is the King James Bible. Nerves of iron, an impeccable skill with the blunderbuss. Show the filthy Martian barbarian no mercy. Cold steel for the lot of them. God save the king. Is it really so hard for one to believe that UFOs could really be UFOs? That not everything can be casually debunked by a man or woman in a lab coat? After all, what is the most implausible possibility? That not everything we see flying around in our skies can be tagged and identified? Or that the proverbial man or woman in the lab coat literally has the answer to every conceivable question in the universe? I know the answer. Do you?